Welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. Welcome to the ABCA's mini-series, Father and Son. In this series, we cover the coach-player and parent-child relationship through the eyes of the coach and their sons who played for them. This is a truly unique relationship, and this mini-series should be of value to any coach, parent, or player. Thanks for tuning in, and please enjoy Father and Son. Today on Father and Son, we sit down with Scott and Jeff Pickler. Scott is an ABCA and Cape League Hall of Famer. Scott has coached at Cypress College since 1985 and has been the manager of the Yarmouth Dennis Red Sox in the Cape League for 22 seasons. Jeff played for Scott at Cypress in 1996. After one season, he transferred to Tennessee and was the 1998 Southeastern Conference Player of the Year. He played in the minors for eight seasons and had 1,000 hits in AAA. Pro scout with the Diamondbacks, coached at Arizona, and one summer in the Cape with his dad. In 2017, he was the Twins Big League staff and currently is on the Cincinnati Red staff. Welcome to Father and Son. We're here with uh, Scott and Jeff Pickler. Uh, I guess both can go by pick, and we'll figure that out as we go. And I want to jump right into it. Can you both talk about the decision for Jeff to go to Cyprus? I don't know if there was a decision. You know, he he got recruited by Texas Tech out of high school, and he had agreed to uh, accept a small scholarship to go play for Larry Hayes at, at Texas Tech. And just like every other father, I was proud that, you know, he was very academic and he was going to a big time school. Larry had it going there at Texas Tech and everything else. And so I really didn't recruit him. Um, You know, I thought he was excited about that. And, you know, he went through the process. He talked to Larry. The only thing he probably wasn't real excited about, he was, Larry was honest with him and told him he's going to back up his infielders type of thing. And so... I went out and Keith Ginner was coming to our place and I recruited another second baseman. I don't remember his name. Uh, and then sometime in late June, early July, and Jeff will tell you if this is right or not. I don't know about the timing. I forget about those a little bit. And his mom came to me and said, I think Jeff wants to play for you. And so then Jeff and I had a talk and he said, Hey, I've watched all the guys that go to Cyprus and a lot of them will move on to D one and have success. I'm not going to be real fired up about going there, backing somebody up. I want to play. I want to get better. And so we did that. So we went from there. In fact, the story gets even better that I knew Keith was coming, Ginner, and who obviously ended up playing in the bigs, and he played some third base at high school. But the other kid was a second baseman, and we recruited him hard, and we felt good about what we had, and we weren't trying to over-recruit, like a lot of the community colleges. We're trying to keep our numbers down. So after Coach Pinkham's prodding, called this other second baseman, and I said, hey, who else was recruiting you? He told me Golden West was recruiting him. 
And I said to the kid, you may want to do that because we recruited another kid and I'm sleeping with his mom. (laughs) (laughs) And Jeff, my brother did the same thing. He was supposed to go to Miami of Ohio and then at the last minute decided to go play for my dad at Evansville. And he's four years older, so he kind of broke the mold for me to do that. Talk about that decision a little bit, you know, just with the decision to finally go play for your dad. Yeah, I think it was it was twofold. I think Pitt touched on it. Like, had some opportunities to go to four years, um, good opportunities for good coaches and good programs, and it was really fun to go through that process. Uh, Larry Hayes at Texas Tech was really starting to get it going. They were recruiting the West Coast heavily. Um, I went to Texas Tech, loved the campus, loved the scene, um, got to see a great weekend of baseball and thought this is what I want to do. And my fact, my wife and I were going through pictures during isolation here at the house. And we came across a photo of me signing a letter of intent to Texas Tech. And uh, Erica goes, how'd that work? Like, and I said, well, I signed it, but I never sent it in because the week I signed it, that was the weekend of dad's state finals. And I went to Cerritos College and watched uh, a, a Cypress team put on one of the most amazing baseball displays to win a state championship offensively defensively and the excitement and everybody that was in my circle family and friends was there and I said this is what I want to do um and and Pick touched on it that most of my opportunities I was an undersized uh player most of my opportunities weren't to come in and be the guy it was on a small scholarship or academic money or whatever it was and so there was that and then the last piece of it is I was actually hitting uh, in the cage at Cyprus around this time, staying in shape and wrestling with the decision a little bit. And, uh, one of Pick's assistants asked me, he said, uh, what do you really want to do in college baseball? I said, well, I, I want to go to Omaha and win a national championship. And he goes, all right, so then that's your decision. Do you think you guys can get that done at, at Texas tech? And at the time, Larry was still building it and hadn't been to Omaha yet. And, um, ultimately I said, listen, Pitt just won a state championship. They're going to be really good. He's had a history of placing guys in programs that have a chance to go to Omaha. Um, and then there was the last piece of it, which I had grown up around the program and it was just a fun place to be every day. It was, it was, it was baseball. It was, um, it was collaboration. It was people going around, having a good time. It was, uh, intense. It was learning the game, talking the game and, it was just an environment that I knew that would be really enjoyable and, you know, help me be a better player and grow up a little bit. So when you get there, how did you guys handle the father, son, player, coach relationship? You know, I called Mike Maine, who coached Brett Maine. Mike was at Orange Coast and I called Mike and I said, how'd that go? And he suggested I do it. Um, he said, there's a couple things that we talked about that, I came back and talked to Jeff about doing this. I said, and the big thing that Mike said, because Brent, whenever Brent was hanging around the guys off the field and things, he told him, I don't want to know what's going on because I wouldn't be privy to that information and I don't want that to put that pressure on you. So that was the big one. And then the other thing that really helped when Jeff came to Cypress. I had a guy, Ronnie Hawksinger was the infield coach. Bill Pinkham has been with me for 35 out of 36 years was with me. And they did an unbelievable job of taking the pressure off of me when Pick would get four or five hits in a game and they would pick him up or Pick would make a mistake. They'd jump his butt and, and go from there. And 
took a lot of pressure off me. And Vic hit on it a little bit. It's pretty open at our place. People aren't afraid to say what they think. And so Billy and Hawk really did a great job of doing that. Was it always in the back of your guys' mind for Jeff to come for one year and then go? Or had you guys planned on him being there two years? How did that process work? It was a great story. Um, And I'll let Pick elaborate on it in a second. But Long Beach State was playing Tennessee at Blair Field. And we were playing a Saturday afternoon game. They were playing Saturday night. So Dave Serrano was the assistant there. He came over because they had already recruited Augie Ojeda. He had already committed to him and Augie had made five visits and decided he was going to Tennessee. So Dave came by and he watched the game and stayed till the end. And before he played his game at Blair that night, he called me. Little Pick had a big day. I think I forget who we were playing. Pick might remember. But he had three or four hits. And Dave called me and said, boy, your boy's a player, Pick, and type of thing. And then... He went back home. In fact, you tell me if I'm right or wrong on this one, Pick. He went home. Their second baseman, who they had recruited, had got kicked out of a game. And he went off a little bit. And I think they suspended him for their Tuesday game. And the young man went in. This is a week later. And the young man went in and said, I can't play for you guys. And put his gear on. I got a call from Dave. And he said, hey would you mind if we recruited your son? I said, it's, it's funny you ask that. We're off this weekend, and it happens so quick. Now tell them the real story. Pick no, up. that's it. That's it. The, uh, that's exactly right. I, I mean, they came out and practiced at Cypress, Tennessee did, when they were playing Long Beach State. And obviously, Augie had already signed a letter of intent in the fall. And uh, new coach Serrano from the time in Southern California. And I think, Pick touched on it is I think the development from when four-year schools were seeing me as a senior, very undersized, and um, come back in the spring after a year at Cyprus in the program. And it, you know, like most kids, when you go from a senior in high school to the end of your freshman year, you you grow up quite a bit, and it's a big development. So I think there was a lot of eyes opening of like, oh, whoa, okay, this isn't a little sand nap player who can't do a lot of things and. So I think that opened Dave's eyes and uh, yeah, Pick had it right. They, they came out and said, hey, listen, we'll, we'll start this process uh, next fall and talk about an early signing and you'll play your sophomore year at Cypress and then we'll come get you. And they had the episode with the, the underclassman second baseman who uh, was no longer on the team due to the incident. And they just called back and said, hey, let's fast forward this thing a year. We'll bring Augie and Pick together. Uh, they can go short and second at Cypress and then the next year, short and second at Tennessee. And so it happened fast. And, you know, Pitt can speak a little bit more to how he had to navigate that with a lot of the other D1 coaches, knowing that, you know, it was going to be opened up for me to leave early. And the relationships that he has with those D1 coaches are so important to him that he had to make sure to navigate that the right way. And this is around 95. This is, that's exactly right. Yeah. I thought you, cause I think I'm a two, I think I'm two years older than you, Jeff. So I was trying to do the math as far as when that would be, because back then that wasn't happening a whole lot. And it's funny. You make that decision to go play for your dad. I didn't decide till after I'd graduated from high school that I was going to end up going to Evansville. So much later in the process, but pick, were you seeing many one and done guys at the junior college level back then? You know what? 
yes and no. In our program, I've never held a kid back. Yeah. Mitch Kaler had done it before that Long Beach came. Uh, Benny Francisco came and then UCLA. In fact, we recruit kids and tell them. We think we take so much pride in getting kids to the next level at Cyprus. And, you know, I like to win as much as anybody. But our goal is to move kids to the next level. So whenever that has happened, I move them on if they have the opportunity. Now, it's happened before where guys have come in and I've gotten that call and you'll understand this because you were in Division One baseball. I'd get the call and say, hey, pick, you got a freshman catcher. Can I, can I grab this guy? And I said, yeah, what do you got coming in? And I, I asked the tough questions that the kids can't ask. What do I have coming in? Yep. And they, they said, well, I got this kid that could be drafted and we don't know, you know, freshman catcher and D1 baseball and thing. And in that situation, I said, if that kid doesn't sign, no, you can't have him because when you recruit a kid out of Cyprus, it's because you have a need, exactly. you know, that they're going to come in and play right away, not to back up. He's not an if, if the catcher doesn't develop and something along that lines. So anytime they've come after us, it had to be that all of our coaches thought this kid's going to perform at the next level. You know, Benny Francisco had no problem playing at UCLA, did it with Steve Smythe, um, a young man that came in as an outfielder. We made him and turned him into a pitcher, and it happened fast, and USC came after him. So, no, I wasn't opposed to doing that. And I think, you know, it's like when little pick went to Tennessee, I got to work the trials with Skip Bertman and those guys, and I stopped in Tennessee, and I go, man, did I do the right thing? What's going on? And and he had me tour the campus and do everything. And I spent a weekend watching big time football. And I go, man, I put my kid in a great situation. Hey. So, yeah, the one I'm done didn't bother me. Now, I had one coach at one time didn't bother me. You know, you know I tried, told you we tried to control our recruiting. We had a second baseman. And then I got a call in August and from the kid and said, hey, with about three days before school started and said, hey, I'm going to Georgia Tech. And I go, what do you mean you're going to Georgia Tech? And never got a call from the coach, and I was bitter. Had you coached Jeff at all before college? Yeah, in a T-shirt, Little League, or, you know, 12-year-old, 13-year-olds. Yeah, we did Jeff, that. how was that for you at that age? I think, I think it's, it's, you know, people have asked a little bit about being a coach's son and what was that like, what was that like growing up in that environment? Um, I don't remember a time where he ever said, come on, let's go hit. And mom would tell me, you need to go. If you want to go hit, you need to go ask him. Yes. He'll go, but you need to go ask him. And that's how it always was like, Hey, let's go hit. Um, he was very, very much hands off. He said 12. I recall that that I was 15 when we played in that league. So I was 15 before he even coached and that was just a winter ball team that he put together so we all would have a place to play and so he could get his baseball fix in the fall too but um no it was very much hands off and you know it's funny I, I read a lot of the old wooden stuff and there's so many things that wooden would talk about that would resonate with me on things that that pops had done with me and specifically with not pontificating I mean it, it takes a lot to get my dad to get up on a soapbox and, you know, it's much more about let's go get it done. Let's go 
win, let's go compete. Uh, I'm not smart enough to have a lot of theories, which we all know is a lie, but um, you know, that's, that's kind of how he talks about it. So there wasn't a lot of um, teaching life lessons or baseball lessons. It was more in the context of the game. This is how we play the game. This is what we do. Hey, this happened in my game today, as opposed to come here, son, let me teach you something. And pick, sorry for the Cape league season, but can you guys both touch on your experience? Uh, I have Cape league experience as a player and a coach as well. So can you guys talk about what the Cape league has meant to you guys? Oh, it was awesome. My first experience out there was to go watch him play. I got a call from John Wilde at Wareham and he said, Hey, pick, I was out playing a Sunday basketball game. And he said, I need a second baseman. And I said, let me think about that. And I said something to him and I said, I got a kid that's at Tennessee. He had a decent year. And John didn't say yes right away. And I said, but I'll think about it, John. And he must have gone back and looked to talk to some other people. And he called me, hey, I'll take Jeff. So Jeff took off and he went to the Cape. And that was my first experience. You know, I had heard my whole life about the Cape League. And so I got on the next plane. My wife said, where are you staying? I don't know. I'm going. I've heard so much about the Cape. And so that had to be, you know, in 19, what year did you play up there? 98 or? 97. 97. Now, Jeff, was that the year before you were the SEC player of the year? Yeah, the Cape, yeah, the Cape is such a, you know, the, the opportunities that life presents in random times and things you don't plan out. And, you know, we all like to think we have it all mapped out and, it doesn't ever really play out that way. And this was one of those fortunate happenstances. So I actually uh, had resigned myself a little bit that uh, I just might not be good enough and that I was going to play my senior year at Tennessee and figure out what was next in life. And um, so I was going to come home that summer and I felt like my best chance to really try and change who I was as a player was to, at a late point in life, try and learn to switch it. And I had always struggled left on left. So I came home that summer and really dedicated myself to hitting right-handed and trying to see if I could go back as a senior and make that work. And so Pick and I were working on that most of the summer. I hadn't really even hit left-handed. And um, that was the reason why I wasn't playing at the time. And uh, so the, the opportunity presents itself. And the thing about the Cape that was eye-opening for me was – I had spent some time in a cage that that offseason learning how to switch hit with Bob Boone and Bob Boone had shared some really simplistic ideas on hitting that really resonated with me. And even though I wasn't hitting left-handed, can you touch uh, on those a little bit? What resonated? Like what'd he tell you that was so simple that made sense to you? Well, it's funny. Like he, to, to make it simple, he, he used analogy of him facing Nolan Ryan, which is anything but simple, but, uh, so he was talking about facing Nolan Ryan and he said, Nolan Ryan was a guy that he handled well. And the reason that he handled him well is because he never had to wait. He knew he could just be on go against Nolan Ryan and there was no risk of being out in front. And so this idea of if I can hit Nolan Ryan, I got more time than I ever could dream of having. There's never any reason to rush against anybody. And Bob would get right up on me and have a ball in his hand and say, just stand there and wait. You never know when I'm going to flip it. And he'd flip it, you know, at random times and I'd smoke it. And he goes, you realize how little time you have right there to do that? If you can do that here, there isn't any guy on the mound that should ever make you rush. And so it was a little bit physical and a little bit mental. But the idea being that the harder they threw, the more advantage it was for me. Um, taking that into the Cape from a mindset standpoint, 
and obviously some of the physical stuff he had talked about. And then to go out there and perform with a first time in a prolonged wooden bat season and perform. And there was a, it was eye opening to me of like, Hey, I, I'm, I might be all right at this. Yeah. And, um, we went out there. It was an amazing summer. Carlos Pena was playing first base. Barry Zito was on the mound for us. Um, we ended up winning a Cape championship and uh, really felt a part of it and went back to Tennessee in the fall feeling like hey, there might be more in the tank upside wise after this season for me. And so a lot of that is due to the Cape. And I coached up there in 99 and 2000, and I'm on the way back home from the Cape League schedule, and I stop in Indianapolis with my dad, who coached for a long time, and um, run into your dad, actually. You were playing. Brad Tyler played for my dad at Evansville, who played nine straight years in AAA. And um, so it's just one of those happenstance things with baseball that I actually got a chance to watch you play while you are coming up. Um, uh, just uh, Those are the neat baseball experiences that you have. Scott, can you talk about your relationship with Mrs. E? I mean, we lost her a while ago. Can you talk about Mrs. E and how much she meant to you? She was the best. Um, I'd go in there, and first thing when I first got the job there, Jack Martin said, hey, you got to get together with the housing chairman. And so I go, ooh, who's this gruff lady that I'm talking to on the phone? Hadn't met her in person or anything else. And she told me how to recruit. She told me who to go get. She told me what it was going to be like. And then she, you know, never let on that we liked each other because she wanted to be the tough one. It's just like, I don't know if you got to stay in her house, the kids that had to stay in her house, we changed all the rules. You won't wear a hat at my house at dinner. You're going to take off your shoes. You're going to clean your bed. You're going to do this. They'd have the two for three night and she'd tell them what they did wrong on their third of that. She was a beauty, but she, she had, a real feel for kids. She'd come in and say, this kid's a pretender. This kid's not real. This kid would be real. She, she had a feel for young men. So, yeah. And then that with Dan Callahan too, you know, there's, there's that YD relationship with big shooter. He's no longer with us as well. And, um, right. you know, there's some deep ties with that with Ty Neal. And then, um, you know, you had Mike current as an assistant as well. You've had some, some really good assistant coaches. I've had some unbelievable assistant coaches and great relationships. It's been a great thing. In fact, I don't know if you know this, Jeff and I coached together one year up there in 2000. I did not know that. Yeah. And that was, I learned more baseball from him at that time. You know, he's talking about the stuff that I learned. It was unbelievable because the stuff, had you just left Arizona? Was that when you came up? Yeah, so it was 2009. I had spent three years working for Josh Burns uh, with the big league club in Arizona with the Diamondbacks, six, seven, and eight. And then so this was the summer of 09 after I'd spent a year with Andy Lopez at the University of Arizona. And, you know, you're doing a segment on father sons. I enjoyed coaching with him as much as I did when he played for me. It was unbelievable. It was a different relationship. He was further along in his career. He's so more advanced than I am right now in the things and the things that I learned from him. Um, in fact, I want to go back to when he was playing for me. He wasn't as scared as I was that he was going to get it done. I recruited this 150-pound left-handed hitting second baseman, and I usually recruit only shortstops at Cypress and move somebody over, and he was a second baseman. And then he answered the call. I think opening day he got three or four hits, and I think we were at the desert. And the next day he got five hits. I don't know. He crushed it. And, wow, I took a sigh of relief. Thank you. You know, because everybody, every parent out there, wants you to play the eight best players and their son. 
And so I didn't want that pressure of him not performing or, you know, and he did it to open the season. I think we opened against Fullerton in league and he did it again. And he had a great year for us, but I was nervous. <laughs> I was more nervous than anybody else that I'm going to, people would think I'm playing him because he's my son, but he answered the call. Jeff, what are the biggest things that you picked up from your dad while you did play for him, coach with him, that you used as a player after you left him? And then how are you using it now? Yeah, um, I think the neat part about that is that these aren't things that he sets out to teach. I think a lot of the way he teaches is just by how he goes about his business. So um, I think a lot of the things that you know, he would never say, hey, what's the, been the secret to the success at Cyprus? But those of us that have had a look behind the curtain, I think we have an idea of, of how he tends to get it done every year. And it's a lot of the stuff that, you know, other people talk about, but it's hard to execute on. So um, he's the same every day. So the, the standards, whether it be on a Tuesday in practice or on a Thursday against the, the first place team, the standards are the same. You know, we're not competing against the other team in the other dugout. We're competing against the game and ourselves. And so the standards are, are high regardless of what environment it is. Um, I think one of the beauties of what he does is he doesn't make a thing a thing. So I think coaches will find a negative and they'll harp on it and it becomes worse. It doesn't become better. So whether that is getting runners in from third with less than two outs or this hitter can't handle left on left or the things that people tend to make a thing, he doesn't make a thing. And because he doesn't, guys tend to do pretty well at those things. So I think that's important. Um, trying to think of some other things that uh, the, the, it, it's funny. It's uh, I, I can remember being at Cyprus and we were playing, I think it was second to last game of the year. And we were playing a last place team and we were going to win the league or close to it. And not much was on the line. And he thought our, preparation was pretty cavalier and it was probably the most mad that I had uh, seen him get the entire year. The game hadn't even started yet, but just the lack of respect for the other team and not respecting the game, like flipped a switch. And there was a, a lesson there of, Hey, listen, we get an opportunity to step on a field. This is how we go about it, regardless of who's in the other dugout. Both picks. Can you talk about the advantage of, of junior college? I think, He's a great example of this that would have gone to a, a division one and backed somebody up or had limited playing time. I think, you know, especially the league we play in, that Orange Empire League is a very good league, and we've had so many kids go out and perform. Um, I think there's so many advantages that the academics are the same. You're going to take your general ed and you go out and you get to play. And it's funny we're talking about this here because of what's going on with the coronavirus thing. There's a lot of kids that we're getting calls now for kids that want to come back from D1, kids that signed with a, a Division One, and there's no room for them right now. And uh, I think there's a ton of advantages of playing every day. And when Jeff was there, we had the fall, and we used to play almost three or four times. We weren't limited. We're limited now. But by the time our freshmen reached January, they were almost sophomores, and everybody knows the difference, the best – time the kids make their biggest jump from their freshman to their sophomore year 
we'll let him elaborate on that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, he touched on it. But just the amount of games, the amount of reps in the fall back then was such a development opportunity. Um, more than that, for me, there was a maturity piece to that needed to happen, both physically and kind of mentally. I, I would say that, you know, for as much as Pick was talking about academically, uh, I was in a good spot, probably street smarts and growing up and being a little more mature, uh, I wasn't. And so this was a good opportunity for me to get out a little bit without having to be thrown to the wolves at a D1 environment. Uh, my fall semester at Cyprus, we were playing and a lot of the other players on the team, they had nicknamed me sour because every time I got out, it was this emotion and bitterness and 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 it was like geez tell this kid to get over himself you know and and so it was great it was a great environment to be able to like hey man like enough's enough like grow up and uh by the time that I got to Tennessee a year later it was almost the exact opposite like I wasn't quite John Olrude but I was close you know and so the 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 maturity piece for some players is just as important as the physical part coach Pinkett went over it we were playing in the fall. Pink was coaching first base. And, you know, fall ball is what fall ball is. And Sauer hit a ground ball and grounded out, got to first base with two outs, took his helmet and flipped it to Pink on the ground, you know, threw it to him and ran to his position. Pink picked up the helmet and chucked it right back at him. That's not how we act around here. And that's what I was talking about, Pink and Hawk, how they handle things, you know. It was – Pick didn't understand it, but our guy would throw the ball down to second base in between innings in the fall, and, you know, he'd bury it in the dirt, and those guys would shy away from it or olay it. And he says, no, that's our ch- chance to get better. And think, why do I have to bury my head on a ball in between innings? And just the little things that they learned from those two guys. And I didn't have to do any of it. Those two guys did most of it. So. Scott, do you like that California has its its separate championships? You know, I addressed this at one time and said, "Why don't we join the national thing?" And when we and so we pursued it a little bit, and they talked about it, and they said that we had ninety two schools at the time playing, and they wanted to give us one entry into that thing. You know, and. You know, the Arizona schools, I don't know how many they had, 10, and they get an entry, and yep. um, it works out. It's It's been a great thing. You know, with 92 schools, that's a lot of schools playing community college baseball. Can you elaborate on what it means to you to be an ABCA Hall of Famer? Um. <laughs> It's unbelievable because you, you look at the list of the guys that are in there, my idols, all the guys that I looked up to, you know, and those types of things. And I still don't consider myself in that, that category. So you got to give yourself more credit. Day, unbelievable. It's, uh, I surround myself with good players and with good assistant coaches. And you I'll know, say this, right? I, I, knew, I knew how I felt and obviously I was biased, uh, but it was tough because the game of baseball and how it was coached for me was held in such a high standard. And I struggled uh, after I left Cyprus and, and this was more on me than it was on anybody else, but, and it was good for me to see another way, but I, I thought the Cyprus way was the light in the way, man. And uh, it, it was just how much high regard and esteem 
that I held for how Pick went about the game. Can you both talk about maybe your experiences with the convention? Oh, I think it's, I went, started going at a young age to learn this stuff and the stuff you learn in the hallways, the people you meet and everything else. Um, I think it's unbelievable what they do and how it's grown. And I just, I, I can't say enough about having your own organization that's that strong and that's that important of getting info out and information. And I look forward to going to the convention every year. It's, it's just part of life, you know? Um, Jeff and I talk baseball probably two, three times a week. And you get that one weekend where you get to go with the, the NC2A puts, I mean, the ABCA puts it on. And, you know, I think it's one of the best organizations out there. Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny. I, I grew up, the, the ABCA was passed on to pick by his mentor, Larry Mercandani at Cypress College. Hey, if you want to be good at this, you go to this. And that was passed on to me. And I remember an audio cassette tape that pick brought back from after Andy Lopez won his first national championship at Pepperdine. And it was Lopes's talk at the ABCA. And you know, most kids were listening to music in their old Sony yellow Discman or Walkman, whatever it was. I was listening to Andy Lopez on repeat. And, and there were still so many things from that talk that I still reference today. I never tell a young person that something is impossible. The world may have been waiting centuries for the one person ignorant of the impossible to do that one thing um, was on that was on that speech, you know, the fly in the ointment, these were all Andy Lopez things. So um, this was a part of my growth. And then what well, probably our, our favorite ABCA was uh, Pick and I got to speak together in San Diego in 2009 on infield play and um, to be able to do that together on the main stage and kind of share our banter back and forth and how we see the game similarly and differently. Um, and then obviously to be there for his Hall of Fame induction, um, it's uh, it's been a big part of his coaching career, the ABCA, and obviously grateful for what they've done for the game, but also for our family. And you talk about differences. What do you feel like are your differences from your dad? Um, I, I, I think he has a really healthy filter for and, – and he should, right? There, there's so many things – so many games that he's won and things that he believes in that, you know, you, you can't fall for anything. You, you got to stand for something. And so I think it's really when I start to think about some new things and, and usually when I have these brainchilds, I know that if I take them to Bill Mosiello or my dad, I'm going to get a really thorough audit on, Hey, you might've gone a little too far on this one. And, uh, and I love it. So I think there's this willingness from both, pick and Mo to grow at the same time, staying true to what's made them great in their careers. Um, I think some of the, I'll give you one that he was so far ahead of the game on and that, and that was the double play depth. He hasn't played double play depth at Cyprus in ever. And, uh, and now we're getting so at the major league level, we're getting there from a data perspective 
and he got there from a field perspective. Like this doesn't feel right. Like why am I giving up range to get two out? And and uh, so there's it's fun. Like there's things that oh, at his Hall of Fame induction um, for the Cape Cod League, and I was kind of presenting him, and I said, listen, for everybody that uh, thinks that Pitt's old school, he should be teaching the classes at new school because he was ahead of the curve on so many things, but he, he, fat, he got there from a different perspective. Jeff, what are the biggest differences at the pro level right now from when you start, when you were playing, you played for a long time. I think you had a thousand hits in AAA, right? Um, what are the biggest difference with the, on the coaching side at the pro level now, as opposed to when you were playing? Um, because I said so is not good enough yeah. and it shouldn't be. Uh, these players out of respect for the players, we can't guess. You need to go, go look, you need to go figure it out. And, and I like that the players are demanding that of us. The, the title that's next to my name doesn't give me authority. The, the quality of my con content does. And so the, the relationship is much more of a partnership and this is happening at all levels, not just the big league level, but um, what do you think? What did you feel? Um, what's worked for you in the past and you may have an idea of where you want to go, but just these asking these questions to try and help guide us. And then it's different from player to player. We have probably the best example on our team, which is Trevor Bauer and Sonny Gray. Trevor wants to know the blow by blow, the inch by inch, the pound by pound, like, tell me why, tell me why. And Sonny's on the other side, which is, Hey, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. I don't want to hear it. And, and both are great. So there's an understanding of what the player needs. And, you know, so everybody says, well, you know, players can't handle data at that level. You better not say that to Trevor Bauer. Yep. He can probably handle it at, at any level better than any of us. So I think it's understanding what the player needs, what resonates with the player and what's going to motivate him. David Bell has done such a great job with our clubhouse of making the players make this their own. Uh, us telling them to do anything isn't going to stick them buying in and them really wanting to do something for their career and for themselves and for our team is what's going to stick. And if that takes a little longer, it's still going to be worth it in the long run. And there's so youth, I, there's I youth kids using blast motion sensors right now that are fine with handling the, the instant feedback that they're getting from the blast motion sensors. There's youth programs that are using the sensor right now. We're seeing a lot of leading from behind. There's a lot of players that are, are, are leading and pushing coaches more than players pulling player or coaches pulling players into this type of data for sure. What were some of the adjustments you had to make going, you know, through your coaching career with, with some of the data stuff? What were some of the adjustments you've had to make? I think it's just being open. And, and again, being open is a product of your environment, being around people that I thought if I had one game, to win for the rest of my life, like pick or Mo are managing that game. And they're the two most open guys I've been around. that want to learn more about the game. So the two guys that I think know the most about the game are want to learn more than anybody else. Yeah. And that was just so telling to me. So I, I have no understanding whatsoever of this debate of old school versus new school. And my answer is yes, all of the above let's get better. Um, I, I just, so for me, it was being open to this stuff. And then like we've talked about is having a healthy audit, not just falling for everything. I, I, just because it's new, doesn't mean it's better and it's right. And no matter what we've done, whether it be in a 
traditional coaching or from a data perspective, we look back five years ago and we go, ah, man, I, I, I wish I knew now what I knew then. So let's have some humility, even the, with the data that we're using right now and know that five years from now, it's probably going to be a little better. And we're going to look back at it now and go, man, we probably shouldn't have talked about that as much like it's the gospel. You know, you, you talk about the ABC and I go this year and I listen to Corbin talk and talk about team chemistry and picked up stuff, went back and said, wow, that's awesome. Then I go, you mentioned Ty Neal, who's not coaching right now, who should be. He's an unbelievable guy. And Ty coached for me in the Cape. So I went to listen to Ty speak on pitching and picked up something instantly that I took back. And that's what the ABCA is. Every year, I think there's probably two or three things. You know, you listen to a guy talk, and if you go in and get one or two things that resonates with you and and it works. And even Pick and I have talked when he started coaching in the big leagues and things like that. And when he went to University of Arizona, I said, when I was coaching high school at Loera High School, I went to Cyprus, didn't do anything different. Went to the Cape and teaching the best players in the nation, supposedly, and didn't change anything. And I told Pick this. I said, I'll bet you when you go to the big leagues, it's going to be the same as when you taught at Arizona and you're going to have guys that buy in and, I think it's the same at every level. I really do. No, uh, yeah. I just wanted to echo what he said. Connecting with players is connecting with players, and players want to get better and they want to compete. And that doesn't matter what age they are. And if you treat players with respect, you don't ever have to change your style. Uh, I don't respect a big leaguer any more than I respected Danny Butler at the University of Arizona. So um, I think that those those are principles that apply at any level. Pick Ty loves telling a story. He's, he's with you for the first time at YD, and he's throwing batting practice, and you're mumbling behind the cage, and he, he can't hear what you're saying. And I think he asked your assistant what you were saying. He's like, you need to throw harder. You know, and I coached <laughs> Ty one summer. I coached him in New York, and then he actually coached with me in Quincy. He was my pitching coach, so I've known Ty as a player and then as a coach, but he loves telling that story because he was like, oh, I needed the feedback because he was a soft-tossing lefty in college, but – He's like, yeah, Pick's telling you you need to throw harder for BP. <laughs> One of the best. He is truly a baseball man. He would be in that mode with Mo for Pick if he talked pitching with Ty Neal. He's a special guy. And that's why I See, wanted him to – That's why he liked that summer when we coached together because then that summer he didn't have to whisper it. He'd just yell it out. <laughs> that was the best part about that summer. All the things he ever wanted to say to one of his assistants, he didn't worry about it to me. And I didn't worry about it to him. I say, you know, we'd be up by five when I say, hey, we got to get whoever we got to get Jones going. Ah, uh, you know, he, he hadn't thrown the ball very well. I go, we're up by five for crying out loud. If he can't throw today, when can he throw? <laughs> and I wanted Ty to speak just because he and I are similar on arm care health, especially from the youth and high school side of things. So I knew he was going to do a great job talking on taking care of arms because he's always been so passionate about it. And I didn't want people to forget about him too, because he is one of the best baseball, whether he's in it or not right now, he's still one of the best baseball guys there there is out there. I, I truly believe that. Yeah. You both are at the higher levels of baseball. What we, what can we do right now to help grow the game of baseball? Ooh, that's a good question. I think it's, the table's been set. Uh, technology, um, access to information is at an all-time high. 
uh, I was talking with a dad yesterday and just explaining like it used to be that we had to wait to read a book or it had, we had to wait until um, a teacher or a coach could tell us what to do. Now we're only limited by our intellectual curiosity. If you want to get on the computer and learn how to do something with regards to the game of baseball, um, obviously it would be good to have a little bit of a discerning filter and not fall for everything that's out there. But uh, the, the, the access to information is at, at an all time high. And so I think this is happening organically. I think uh, there's some things that we need to do at our level that uh, need to focus on the future of the game. Uh, right now, the fans at our level are getting increasingly older and we just need to be able to cater our game at the major league level to a wider audience and, and, and a changing demographic in the United States. And that's not to say that we need to make wholesale changes and change the game for what it is, but Chris Young and I were teammates and Chris is now working at the commissioner's office with Joe Torrey and Peter Woodfork and Rob Manfred. And, and Chris and I have talked about this. Our, our responsibility is not to preserve a game that we fell in love with it's to make sure that our kids and grandkids have a game that they can fall in love with and appreciate it in, in their own way, not just in the way that we appreciated it as kids. And that's hard for a lot of people. And those are tough debates. They're healthy debates and, and it's passion on both sides. But I think we have to agree that, um, you know, full stadiums on a Tuesday night uh, in April and May uh, between two mid-market teams, that's that's what's good for the game of baseball. That's what trickles down to Little League and everything else. So I think we have a responsibility uh, to lead from the top on on what the future of our game looks like. Pick what do you think? I think, I think everything's going such a positive. You look at the crowds, you see what happens in Omaha, the idea that you're speeding up the game. There was a lot of people that were going to, to – Division one games and everything, and the, they didn't have the clock, and it was so slow, and people would go there for, to watch a game, and four-hour games. I think that's the biggest thing that goes on right now. I think they need to speed up the game. That's, that would be one of my – What are some tips with that? I mean, a lot of people have talked about speeding up the game. What are some tips? Hold on. I'm, letting, I'm not letting him answer this because this is – he doesn't realize how he does this, but it's awesome. So when, when he wins a game – during the regular season, I'll get a text and the text doesn't just have the score. It has the score and the time of game. So he takes real pride in pace of play and feels like it's a competitive advantage. And it starts from the minute that a player gets on campus. So he'll have some pitcher who's, you know, big recruit or whatever, and they'll be on the, on the mound and fall ball and he'll throw a pitch and start walking towards the catcher and he'll scream from the dugout. Get back on the mound. We hire, we recruit catchers around here with good arms. He can get it all the way back to you. Let's go. Get on the mound. Catcher, get down and give the sign. Let's get moving. My dad was and the so exact same way. Exact yeah, same way. And it's, he just takes a ton of pride in, in pace of play. And I don't know if it's as much for winning or just because he enjoys the game more when it's played that way. He wants to get on and get moving. Yep. Just the speed of it. That's that's the biggest thing that I think. And Jeff and I have talked about this even in, in Little League that, you know, it's, there's too many kids standing around doing nothing. You know, I, when little pick was really young, I used to work in the park and rec system and coach pitch and there's action 
action and upon action. And I think that's what, you know, to get more kids interested in it. We run all our inner squad, not all of them. We run some inner squads. We turn on the scoreboard and we start with a one, one count. Let's go, you know, and little things like that. The Northern so. Virginia baseball travel league, uh, in DC with their younger groups, they play six man defense. So two outfielders. And so they only have six man teams. So, everybody bats so because everybody bats it's only six guys and then they move on and it they found that it's got positive results because it keeps people moving and there's not as many guys hitting and then there's not as many guys playing defense too and it's easier on the coach because you're only dealing with six players as opposed to yeah. dealing with a lot more kids so they found some positive results with that my grandson was playing soccer this year and it was four and four with no goalie and everybody was active what a great thing i thought you know it's really telling to me, you know, it's, it, people say, hey, what do you do in the offseason? And my wife and I go to a lot of high school basketball. And people are like, what, what high school basketball? And I'm like, I'll give you two reasons. One, every player on the court is playing like the game's life or death. And it starts at 7 o'clock and I'm home by 8.45. Exactly. Like, it is like, it's. I get to see intense competition. We go watch good teams. And the whole thing's over in two hours. It's It's just an really fulfilling two hour sporting event. Could you get to a point where it's seven inning games? I don't know if our level would get to that point. Um, I think that would be a desperate times, desperate measures. Um, if we got to that point, um, I, I, I really think, you know, they, they, they started some stuff in the Arizona fall league with pace of play. And we learn, we know that this pace of play behavior is learned. It's not innate. Uh, and the way we know that is because you can walk into an Arizona Rookie League or a Gulf Coast League game, and it's played at a much different pace. So this is clearly a learned behavior by our players from the time they come into the system until they get to the big leagues. So we have to take responsibility of, of we've created this a little bit. And TV has a little bit to do with it, too, with commercials. You know, at, at the Division One level, you would know there was going to be a difference between a game you played that wasn't on TV and a game you played that was on TV because of the commercials. And that's where you had to get used to a little bit of the, the amount of time you had in between innings. And, college, you know, Division One tried to speed things up with 90 seconds in between innings and uh, with – with nobody on base, you've got 20 seconds to get rid of the ball. So they've tried that, but it still didn't matter with the TV games because of the commercials in between innings. Yeah, it's the catch-22 because we want to play quicker, but the exposure that Division One baseball got being on TV, you can turn on any Saturday now, watch the Pac-12 channel or the ACC channel, and I think all that's good. And softball's oh. getting there too. You know, there are just so many more opportunities, but that's why you've seen everything drive as well. Okay, well, thanks, guys. Appreciate everything. This means a lot to me, but uh, thank you guys for everything. Ryan, you handled this really well, really well. Good. I thought it was awesome. It comes from the right, heart. Right. You know, these, these have been questions. For, uh, for coaches, and thanks what you're doing for the ABCA. We, we appreciate the work, man. Yep, thank you, guys. All right, have a great weekend. You too, anytime. Yeah. Okay, thanks, guys. Baseball truly is America's pastime. We are all stewards of this great game. I'm so excited to shine a light on these unique perspectives. All of these guests show their passion and love for each other and the great game of baseball. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks for listening to Father and Son, and remember to leave it better for those behind you.